LA Times supporters include HBO, presenting Barry. Barry is a dark comedy about a depressed hitman. On his way to execute a hit on an aspiring actor, Barry follows his mark into an acting class and ends up finding and accepting community in a group of eager hopefuls within the LA theater scene. Emmy eligible for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Eileen Brosh McKenna is co creator and executive producer on the CW sitcom Crazy Ex Girlfriend. In its third season, the show has gone to some extremely dark, emotional places in its storytelling of the personal travails of a young woman played by series co creator Rachel Bloom. The show, though still very much a romantic musical comedy featuring witty, often outrageously bawdy original songs, has made some bold decisions. McKenna, who as a screenwriter worked on such films as The Devil Wears Prada, Morning Glory, and We Bought a Zoo, recently got on the phone to talk about the show and where it may be headed next. Hi, it's Mark Olson with the Los Angeles Times. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to, to talk with me. Absolutely. I know so much of the conversation about this recent season has been around the idea that it took a much darker turn in the storytelling. Tell me a little bit just about the impulse behind that. You know, we covered a lot of topics this year that we felt like we owed, had always owed, and that were inherent in the premise. You know, if you're going to call a show crazy ex-girlfriend, what does that really mean to be crazy? That's not a meaningful term, obviously. So what does that really mean? And what is going on with her? And, you know, everybody has the sort of the heart of the show is that everybody is subject to romantic obsessions. But in Rebecca's case, she's really not able to immerse herself in that in a temporary or in a sane manner. You know, she takes it to extremes. And so last year was really understanding why she is as extreme and why she is as sort of emotionally naked as she is. And that led us to her diagnosis as having borderline personality disorder, which We hadn't set out to kind of write to that disorder. We sort of wrote the character by feel, and then in looking at it and having professionals look at it, it became clear to us that that would be a disorder that matched what her behavior was and her mental state. And then her suicidality was something that we had referenced many times in the previous seasons. It's actually in the pilot. Her mother talks about a previous suicide attempt. So that was something that We had always sensed that we were going to be moving towards. And, you know, the topics are more sort of, quote unquote, serious. But for us, the tone of the show has always been sort of a mix of the comedic and the more serious. And so it felt to us of a piece tonally. And and we did go to great lengths to kind of extend the comedy into those sort of more serious episodes. And was that a challenge? I mean, in some ways, you were sort of maybe reversing the recipe where it had often been essentially a light show that had sort of darker tinges. Right. Do you feel like this season it was essentially a darker show with this sort of a a lighter tinge around it? Well, I mean, in the episode where she attempts suicide, we have one of our absolute silliest stories, which is the one where this woman, Cornelia, has come to replace her at the firm, and everybody behaves very strangely, and she doesn't know why. And that is actually one of our kind of silliest stories. I don't know if maybe it's not the lightest, really, but it always felt like to us like a blend. I mean, when Rachel and I were recently going back and watching some of the early episodes, and she's really ill. I mean, when you watch those episodes now, you can see how sort of unstable she is. And the fact that people are not recognizing it and that Greg is trying to sleep with her and Josh is oblivious, it's kind of 
striking to us looking back, sort of, she seems so palpably ill when you look back on it. So, you know, it was I'll say it was a departure for us in terms of the amount of research that we had to do, because we really wanted to make sure that we were getting the details of her diagnosis right. And so we consulted with professionals and we really wanted to make sure that it was accurate, because that's an area where we felt like we couldn't be lighthearted. You know, we're a legal show, but our legal stuff is rather contorted for dramatic purposes Mm -hmm. in deliberately kind of a fun way. But with the mental health stuff, we felt a giant responsibility to get that stuff right. So we did a lot of research into that. A romantic comedy with musical numbers that grapples with a suicide attempt and mental health issues. I mean, that is really bold stuff. And do you feel like it was sort of only once you'd kind of established the show and gotten to the third season, did you feel free in, like, really going there? Like, do you feel like you'd sort of built up yeah. enough of a relationship with the audience that you could take on this these kind of bigger issues? You know, for me, the, the show has always most resembled something like The Graduate or Heartbreak Kid, where it does have love and romance and courtship on its mind, but in a it's exploring its lead in a kind of a darker way and a more of an anti-hero sort of way. A New Leaf, Elaine May's movie, A New Leaf is another one that I think of. So it was always sort of more modeled on those kinds of movies in my mind. And it is a little bit of a deconstruction of a traditional romantic comedy, the type of which that I have written. A lot of the behavior in romantic comedies is unstable and not something to model actual human behavior on. People act in a really kind of bonkers way in romantic comedies. So in a lot of ways, what we are doing with the show is sort of getting underneath those tropes. And I think it's something that movies like The Graduate and Heartbreak Kid and Harold and Maude and movies like that, that sort of take a darker look at these, what love makes people do and how it makes people act. I'm so taken by the fact that you in particular became involved in this project. Like you said, your own background writing more conventional romantic comedies. Has it been fun for you to sort of turn all that inside out? Yeah, it has been. You know, it's there are tropes that I love to poke at. I, the ones that I love the most, the rom-coms that I love the most are the ones from the 30s and 40s, and they always feel very subversive to me. You know, those movies tend to have strong, flawed female leads, and, you know, because of the era, they often end up getting bonked on the head at the end. But for the course of the movie, you know, they're a movie like Midnight, where Claudette Colbert is basically a sociopath, but they're light and charming and funny and and well-observed are the ones that I had sort of always loved. The more kind of traditional ones, I mean, more recent ones, I would say from the 90s and 2000s, you know, I, I wrote 27 Dresses, but by and large, the ones that I have written have been more of the kind of workplace Movies that have the rom-com tone Mm -hmm. is a funny, because Prada's not a rom-com and neither is is Morning Glory. And I will say that 27 Dresses was one of the hardest scripts I ever wrote because, you know, you're up against these enormous cliches, really. And once you have a newspaper reporter who's not telling you he's a newspaper reporter, it's just like they drop a box of cliches on your desk and you kind of have to figure out a way to do them. And with this show, we have the opportunity to poke fun at all those things. So we have a couple writers in our room, these two women, Rachel Spector and Audrey Walkup, who are probably know more about those rom-coms than I do in a funny way. And we also take on sort of a lot of the other tropes that we take on come from either musical theater or from princess narratives, Disney princess narratives, because a lot of the women sort of who are the age of Rebecca were really bombarded with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast stories, who are which are, you know, basically pretty psychotic stories <laughs> of over-attachment and stalking and erasure of self 
And all those really dark themes are really apparent to Rachel and I and always have been from the beginning. It's funny, we met, we didn't know each other. You know, we met because I was a fan of her videos and I sought her out. And right away, the conversations that we were having were sort of about how psychotic the narratives of love are that we sell, particularly to young women, that and all of those romantic comedies, musical comedies, princess narratives, there's just a lot of ways in which we sell women a particular idea of what love is going to do for them, which, you know, there's a huge dark side that you just, those movies kind of gloss over. It's interesting. I feel like Claudette Colbert and Elaine May films aren't necessarily the typical jumping off point for situation comedies. And do you feel like the fact that you and Rachel are kind of dealing from a different set of references and you've kind of, in some ways, maybe your own sort of fandom is part of what you guys have been, you have been doing to sort of push the form forward and to really be so kind of playful and knowing on the show. Well, one of the real fun things about the show is that Rachel and I have different references. So mine are really 30, 40 screwball comedies, those movies from the 70s that I cited. And, you know, some of the sort of Jim Brooks movies, Cameron Crowe movies, that's sort of where my references are. And Rachel's really come more from sketch, animation, and Broadway musicals. So between us, we have a lot of um, stuff to examine, send up, parody, but they're different things. And so we cover a kind of a wide swath. Rachel is actually, even though we've done a lot of pop music parodies on the show, a lot of that comes from the other songwriters, Jack Dolgen and Adam Schlesinger. Rachel is sort of pretends to like pop music, but if you look at her iPod, it's heavily, heavily Stephen Sondheimed. Um, so I think that at this point, as the old lady, I think I know more about pop music than she does. But, you know, we pull from all different genres. But the fact that Rachel and I have different references is actually really fun and joyful for us. And we've introduced each other to different things. You know, some of that has to do with the fact that I'm just 20 years older. And so we have different, you know, cultural touchstones. But also, she's a real theater girl, theater nerd. Even in the more serious moments on the show, there's always something just so joyful about it. Like, it really, yeah. it, in some ways, to me, it's as if the movie is made by people who love this thing for other people who also love this thing. I guess, where for you does that sort of feeling come from? Like, do you feel like even in its, at its darkest, there's still something upbeat about the show? That's very astute. I've always felt that way, and I think it's one of the reasons we're not a Showtime show, because mm -hmm. I think in their mind it was going to be something darker. I think there's two reasons for that. I think one of them is just that Rachel Bloom, as a person, is just emanates sunshine and warmth and she just does you know she is a like a very joyful spirited fun excited person and that really comes across in her performance you know along with uh, many other things but i think the other most visible thing is her great intelligence but i think that her joy and her sense of silliness really comes across in the character and it really made some of the things that seemed on paper to be kind of dark to be <laughs> kind of joyful celebrations. And then I think, you know, the show is written from a place of love. And, you know, it's Rachel and I are very close and have a close relationship. And we take such joy in writing the show. We write the show kind of year round, even though we, we even when we don't have a deadline, even before we have pickups. So there's a joy. And then, you know, it's also written by a writer's room that's been all together since the first season. You know, we've had the same staff every year. This year we had one lady who left, but we, you know, it's it's a very intact group. And so there's a real sort of, you know, our, our writer's room is just the laughter rings out down the street and there's just a real love and affection for the character and for the show. And I, I think it comes across, but it's, it's led by Miss Bloom for sure. And now we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
LA Times supporters include HBO, presenting Westworld. Live without limits in a world where every human appetite can be indulged. This dark odyssey follows the dawn of artificial consciousness and the evolution of sin. In this hit series, a group of Android hosts deviate from their programmers' carefully planned scripts in a disturbing pattern of aberrant behavior. Chaos takes control in the second season of Westworld. Emmy eligible for outstanding drama series and all other categories. And we're back. And now there's been a fair amount of coverage recently just kind of about the romantic comedy generally. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's on the way out, it's on the way back in, there's a revival. What to you is like this sort of eternal appeal of the romantic comedy? Why is it in some ways a form worth fighting for? You know, it's one of the few like super dramatic things that everybody goes through. You know, everybody tries to find a mate of some in some way, shape, or form. So I think it's one of the most relatable experiences where you feel like you're in a movie. You know, falling in love, by definition, you just feel like no one's ever felt this way before. I am the hero of some incredible journey. And it's a wonderful trick that evolution and biology plays on us to make us think that this utterly banal motivation, really, which is just to perpetuate our DNA, drives us together to literally, like, smash into each other And so I think it's one of the most relatable things. I think one of the things that happened was that the world got complicated, dating got complicated, and the rom-com stayed kind of contrived and goofy, and the audience was just way, way out in front of them. So the traditional kind of 90s, 2000s romantic comedy doesn't exist anymore. And I know a lot of people miss it and love those movies. I think, you know, Judd Apatow still makes what are essentially romantic comedies, but they often have male leads. And then there's a number of television shows like Catastrophe, like Fleabag, that are sort of reinventing the genre. So it still exists, but the you know what I miss are romantic comedies with the two biggest stars in the world falling in love. That is also a little bit about the star and what you think of and love about the star. I've seen every Cary Grant movie ever made, pretty much, and they're always a little bit about being Cary Grant and all those wonderful Julia Roberts rom-coms were sort of about being Julia Roberts, being Julia Roberts. Same thing with Hugh Grant, you know, a great romantic comedy star is somebody whose personal charisma draws you in to the story. And I would love for more big actors to do them. They, they've developed an allergy to them. So I, I'm more in all the Brad Pitt romantic comedies we would have seen if he'd been a star in the thirties. Another thing that's so notable about the show is the way in which alongside its explorations of romantic comedy, it's also so much of an exploration of female friendship. And that aspect of the show, tell me a little bit about how you kind of like work that in parallel and that so it never feels like it's the supporting best friend. Like it feels like it's its own sort of fully fleshed out like storyline. Well, the trope of the, of, you know, Paula's character, which is sort of the, romantic comedy sidekick, Rosie O'Donnell, Judy Greer, sidekick is sort of one of the things we do on the show is we have the real estate to make those characters, those tropes, real people. That's what we do with Josh Chan, who's sort of the hometown hero, you know, local uh, prom king with Valencia's character, who's sort of the witchy bitch who's competing with you for your man. Like, that's one of the joys of the show is to portray those people as real people and to portray a best friendship between two women of different generations where you know, Donalyn is, is essentially playing sort of some version of that character that Rosie O'Donnell played many times. But to actually see what's going on 
underneath the hood there, you know, in terms of her pathologies, action for her, and their very, very dysfunctional relationship, but it's based on love. And women of those age are invisible. And, you know, in my own life, I've gone from being sort of the heroine of my own rom-com to being the best friend, Yenta, to other people's. And But I'm I'm still a person. <laughs> so, you know, Paula, uh, Donna Lynn and I are close, and Paula is very close to me because middle-aged ladies are just written in very, very flatly normally. And then, you know, because the show is written by two women 20 years apart who are very close, that inevitably translates into the show. And so, you know, Rachel and I, we like to think our relationship is not as dysfunctional as Paula's and Rebecca's, but all female friendships are complicated and interesting. And so we love writing that aspect. And now on top of all these other things that we've been talking about, the show is also very much a musical and there's original songs on every episode. And tell me a little bit about how the sort of songs get integrated into the storytelling. In some sense, I'm asking what's the chicken and what's the egg as far as how a song comes about within the story. You know, it's funny. So there's a couple great blind dates at the center of our show. And one is, you know, me seeing Rachel's videos online and then calling her up and and basically having a blind date where I didn't even have an agenda. And then when we were sitting together, I decided I just had had this idea for a crazy ex-girlfriend. I thought a movie, but I thought, oh, I'll do a TV show with this lady. (laughs) And so that was a funny blind date. I mean, that started a conversation that continues five years later. The other great blind date of this is that Rachel had been writing her really, really funny um, music videos. Some of them she had written with Jack Dolgen, who's a very talented songwriter, and did the music, the songs for our pilot. And when we got picked up to series, I knew that we needed sort of more songwriters and that we needed a producer. And it just so happens that Adam Schlesinger, who is the third member of the songwriting triumvirate, happens to be my husband's roommate from New York from 25 years ago. So I knew him when he was in Fountains of Wayne, and I, I was at his wedding. I followed his career, obviously, over the years as he became sort of the pre, one of the preeminent comedy songwriters on the planet and was nominated for Emmy and, and uh, Tony. And so I just happened to have this guy in my back pocket who I thought might be perfect for this job. And so I introduced him to Rachel and Jack, and it's just like, it's definitely my most successful blind date because they just fell in like they'd known each other forever. And it's a really unique collaboration among the three of them. All of the songs are worked on by all three of them at some point, even if someone has taken the lead in writing them. And I sort of serve in a supervisory role, and then I give very rudimentary notes or suggestions. I'm not a songwriter, but I've I've learned a lot about just how to give them helpful feedback in a language they can understand, which often is just embarrassingly primitive. But the show, the writer's room and the storytelling always drives the songs. And so we always start with the outlines and the song process is dependent on the stories and the outlines. And, you know, when they change or if there's a big rewrite or a shift in the writer's room, it's kind of a disaster. So we try and time it so that we're writing songs at the moment where we know they're going to be used for the show. And all of the main songwriters, Rachel, Adam, and Jack, all have other jobs on the show. Adam produces all the music with his partner, Stephen Gold, and Rachel is obviously acting in the show and co-creating the show with me. And then Jack is a writer in our writer's room. So Adam always says that the reason that we have so many songs is because I didn't know that it couldn't be done. I just thought, well, we did it on the pilot. We'll keep doing it. But it's a heroic achievement. And 
I've said many times, I think it's an unprecedented achievement in the American songbook. We will have, by the end of the series, about 150 original comedy songs. And as far as I'm concerned, there's not a dud in the bunch. And they were all written, 99% of them were written by these three individuals. And it's actually so miraculous that I think that people don't get it. Because it doesn't seem possible. Mm -hmm. So people don't think it's happening. And I, it's the thing I'm the biggest evangelist of because to be around these people and see that, you know, they come up with an idea and they're brainstorming and, you know, three hours later you have an A-plus comedy song, which would take other people weeks to write. And they're essentially writing a Broadway musical's worth of original songs every four or five episodes it's really a spectacular achievement, and I wonder if it's something that can only be like fully understood when the show is over. But, you know, we make a pretty good TV show, and I'm proud of it, but the songwriting is an extraordinary, sort of unprecedented achievement. And now with the announcement that this upcoming season, the one you're, you're writing now, will be the final season, what does it mean to you to be able to have the show go out on its own terms, for you all to be sort of like creatively wrapping up the story? I mean, we owe all of that to Mark Pedowitz. You know, he plucked the show out of really obscurity. I We had gotten passed on by Showtime. We didn't know what to do. I saw Jane the Virgin. I suggested to CBS Studios, our home studio, who have been extremely supportive of us. I said, why not try the CW? And, you know, Mark picked up the show not long after he saw it and then has continued to support us every single year despite our really pretty not-so-good ratings. <laughs> And when he picked us up, he said, don't ever pull yourself back. We will allow us to go for it. We will pull you back if we need to. It's just been a, a really unprecedented amount of support from a executive in my career. It's been extraordinary. They understand the show so well, and it's such a weird show that's, that that really is a big deal. And so we lucked out. We really, We really lucked out. And we have a level of support that is comparable to what we experienced at Showtime, and from what I understand, what happens on the streaming sites, we just have complete support across the board and, and basically artistic freedom here. But now, what has it meant for you? It was interesting you said when you first met Rachel that you were maybe thinking about doing a movie with her. And yeah. In some ways... Well, I was thinking of doing a movie of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That was an idea that I'd been walking around with. And then I met her, and... In the meeting, I thought, oh, you know what? It's not a movie. It's a TV show, and I should do it with her. Tell me about that distinction. Like, what for you is maybe the difference in telling this story as a television show than if you had written it as a feature film script? Well, as a movie script, I think, you know, practically speaking, we had sort of gotten to a point where the female leads of these movies had to be so, quote-unquote, likable, and they just beat you up with that. And... TV is a place where you can do antiheroes, where you can do Breaking Bad, you could do Sopranos, you could do Mad Men. So I had sort of a sense of that. and But it wasn't really even that conscious. It just flashed into my brain as I was sitting there talking to her. Like, I kind of walk around the world with a bunch of ideas in my head, and, and I'm in search of the right people for them. <laughs> and, you know, so I always have sort of a collection of Ginsu knives in my jacket. And when I was talking to her, I thought, oh, yeah, you know what? That's how to do this idea. And it just, the kismet was right because the second I said it, she immediately latched onto it because Rachel, like me, is interested in sort of what's underneath stereotypes and preconceptions. And the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, obviously, is something that women get tagged with in particular. And it seemed like something we could really deconstruct. And we both were interested in doing that. 
And now just the last thing I want to ask you is simply, do you have a favorite song from this last season? From this last season? You know, I really kind of try and say I don't have a favorite song because they are really all like your children in a way. But I will say that the one that I find myself playing, you know, by the time the songs are out, I've heard them so many billion times and watched the edits so many billion times that they kind of take away their... And I'm not someone who who tends to rewatch my work very often. But that being said, First Penis really has never lost its the first blush of excitement that I heard when I first heard it. I just think the execution of that is brilliant, and I think it's as tuneful. You know, a lot of these, a lot of times, these songs come across, and I just think they're just as good as anything that could be a big hit on the radio. But First Penis is like the most bewitchingly singable song, and I love the way the video came out. So that's a favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Aileen, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me, and best of luck both with the new season and with everything for season three. Thank you. Rachel got a TCA nomination, so we're very proud. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Yay! And for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.